Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. So welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. Today on the show, we have your hosts, Joshua and Jade, with our special guests, Dr. Raymond Moody. Raymond is a world-renowned author, lecturer, and psychiatrist whose seminal work, Life After Loss, changed the way we view death and dying. He is widely acknowledged as the world's leading expert on near-death experiences, and you can find more about him and his work at lifeafterlife.com. So thank you, Raymond, so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you guys for um, letting me on. I'm just really, and I'm so sorry about my technical incapacities, but I've had to live with it all my life. It's like this Asperger's is what they've called it and back when I was in medical school. And so one of the things is I just can't handle any kind of, you know, computer or machinery. So anyway, so I'm just happy to talk to you on a medium that I can't handle more or less a telephone. That's great. And say this is the beauty of, you know, having multiple ways to get in touch and contact. And so I'm just really excited to speak with you. It's I read your book this summer. Oh, really? Just, you know, likewise. I'm just so happy to hear about you guys and your research. This is just absolutely very exciting and delightful. And so, you know, you're so big, as I said, like you're, some people call you the father of near-death experiences and really shedding light and awareness because you didn't bring about the experience in people. You just showcased what was already going on throughout history. Well, that's right, Joshua. And, you know, in reality, I always feel awkward about that. To me, it's like the person who got the ball rolling on this were actually two of them, Plato and Democritus, about the same time in ancient Greece. So that's how I found out about it, because I was a philosophy major. But then I happened to meet somebody uh, when I was a third-year student uh, who actually had such an experience, Dr. George Ritchie. And that sort of set me off on this quest. And, you know, it was far less dramatic. I mean, it was dramatic in the rapidity with which the public picked this up. But, you know, what, by, the, by 1974, when I wrote that book, the advent of cardiopulmonary resuscitation had caused a great avalanche, I guess, or tidal wave of experiences that had occurred throughout history and were not well known to the Greek philosophers who studied these cases of apparent death where people revived and told these experiences. And But it was a rarity. But then and with when CPR came in, there were more and more. And so I realized that when I wrote my book, it was people say, oh, how courageous. No way. I, I knew full well by the time that book was published that uh, physicians were, would be in a position to uh, 
find plenty of these, and that that's what happened. So, um, so the mystery has been there for a long time, and I'm not so sure we're, you know, that much further along towards solving it. No, I agree. I think it just sometimes takes naming it. And that's one mm-hmm. of the, the big things that you did was name it into something like very catchy and that people could remember and understand. Yeah. And then people would then able to see it more often. I think that's very interesting in life is that when someone names something or makes a, a concept mm-hmm. using a name, mm-hmm. people then see it more often where before it's like people are having that's these experiences, right. but people haven't really labeled it as something yet. And I think that's, I think it's very right. powerful of what you, what you did. Uh, well, well, you know, I mean, in a way it was. You know, I think also it's, Joshua, it's the naming, but also the phenomenology. That's a, a name for a school of philosophy, and I don't mean it that way. By phenomenology, I just meant a description of the typical characteristics. And I think really that's what the um, the life after life did was to to say that this is a common phenomenon and it's also patterned, that it has distinct characteristics by which you can identify it. And then, so when you're saying patterned and specific mm-hmm. characteristics, can you just share a little bit about that? Yes. Now, I came into this from philosophy. You got into it from psychology. I came into it from philosophy and Wittgenstein it solved an old or you know, advanced an old philosophical problem when he pointed out that mostly when we use a common noun term, there is not any one characteristic that character characterized it. He called it like a family resemblance. Like there may be, you know, what, seven or eight different characteristics of a face. And one family member had, may have you know, not, no, not all of the characteristics, but enough of them to make the. And so that's the way I look at it, that if you look at hundreds and now thousands of cases, as I've done, what you see is that the same thing, elements start, are, uh, crop up. And, and it's like, I look to me like about 15 very, fairly common ones. And um, one person who comes close to death may have two or three or four of these or seven or eight or all, sometimes all 15, depending pretty, you know, roughly, it seems to me from experience on how close they got to death, like people with these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests that literally don't make any sense from the point of view of what I read in medical school and my textbooks. Uh, People, for example, who like a dear friend of mine who was believed dead by her doctor, Dr. Nelson, for 40 minutes and yet not only came back, you know, just better than ever, as everybody says. Uh, And that doesn't make any medical sense. I know it, but but it happens. And in those cases are are the ones who have get most in most into this like uh, a person who has a brief momentary cardiac arrest may talk about three or four of these things but somebody who has goes into these extreme things they may get the whole blown full blown picture now what what are the characteristics well people who return from a close call with death will tell us that for example they heard their doctor say something like, oh, my God, he's dead or we've lost her to, or words to that effect, which very surprises them because I hear this all over the world. But I've heard this same remark in translation from many languages, but it's like people say, 
I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. That far from entering what seems like a loss of consciousness, or they say consciousness is amplified, and they say that they, they leave their physical bodies, and they watch from typically above as a resuscitation scene going down on below, for example. And people say that they can't, I mean, there's, there's no longer auditory sensation as we know it. But they say it's not like they hear a voice, but they can understand what the doctors and nurses are communicating or saying among themselves. And at some point, a thought or a realization say, oh, this is what they call death, right? And people say that they go into a state of consciousness, no matter how eloquent or, you know, how many languages they speak. They say there are no words for it. There's ineffability, as William James, as you would know, talked about this feature of such experiences that people say that there aren't any words But the words that they choose are, you know, consonant all over the world. People say that they felt like they proceeded through a passageway, which they may liken to a tunnel, and come out on the other side into this incredibly brilliant and warm and loving, completely clear light. And they say they're just sort of taken up in feelings of love and peace. They tell us that relatives or friends of theirs who have already died seem to be there to meet them, almost like a greeting committee or something. They say that you don't see people as physical presences, but there is a kind of form nonetheless, which they find difficult to describe. But They say you recognize the person through the memories and the feelings and the sense of presence and so on. And very interestingly to me, this to me is one of the most fascinating parts of the near-death experience. At some point, people say that everything else kind of disappears. Time stands still. And they say that everything they have ever done appears around them in a sort of visionary panorama. And in this panorama, they are embedded in the consciousness of those with whom they have interacted. So they say when they see themselves doing an action and are in that, the person doing it, uh, nonetheless feel empathically the impact that action had on the other person and because there's no distinction in this. And very often people say that they review this panorama in, in um, the presence of a being of sheer light. People say that this is a personality and of complete compassion and love, who sort of sees everything you've done. Now, I will say here, even though I worked as a forensic psychiatrist with the the gosh awful people like you see and read about in the tabloids, you know, I mean, these horrific homicides was what I did. And and so I've never heard of any near-death experience from anybody like that. If you know what I mean, I'm not I just or from any of the great villains of history. The folks I've talked to have, by and large, be the the sins with which we are all familiar, right? But people say that that there's a kind of understanding that the the point of this being is that if you look at it, that you see that whatever you were chasing, that the point of all this, that the happiest outcome is to learn to love, is the feeling. So people say at some point, obviously, they have to 
go back. Some people say they have no idea how they got back. There was no the, in one moment in this light, the next moment back in their body with no sense of transition. Other people say they were told you have to go back, kind of kicked out, as it were. And as they got things left to complete, you know, that you, um, although they're not told what that is, they say you got to go back and finish things. Other people are given a choice. The most common reason they choose to come back, and all the ones I've heard is they say that for me, I would rather have stayed, but I chose to come back because I had young children left to raise, or less commonly, some other kind of person who was stuck back there who they needed to help. And uh, so people come out of this. I mean, I'm sure in your psychological career, you're aware that most people are chasing something power or fame or money, or as in my case, and apparently your case, knowledge, right? But whatever we were chasing uh, in life, people say, come back from this and say that what this seems to be all about is to learning to love others. And um, they it's, they also say, though, it doesn't make you, I mean, it's, it doesn't it put you in a situation where you do that automatically, is like, as I like to put it, it's very difficult to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person. And that does not resolve, right? So they still find themselves on a quest, as it were. And then beyond that, beyond what I've said about the, you know, the vision of one's life, there are sometimes people with these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests talk about seeing a realm where it seems to be attached right around to the place we are. And it seems to be consistent of people who don't quite get it, that they're dead and that they are repeating some action. You know, the people have seen this, that it's not any big deal. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like that they just don't get it. And there are these other people around who are trying to snap them out of it, kind of. And then a, a number, quite a number of these extreme cases of people have said, you, you see that there's an entire realm of existence that seems to be consist of knowledge and that. The people there, I mean, it's just like they're pursuing knowledge. And uh, one person, the first person who told me that this about this, he said, if you try to imagine Caltech and MIT and Hale, uh, you know, uh, uh, Yale and Harvard and uh, and Princeton, all of them wound up into one. You couldn't even begin to imagine this. But then even beyond that, a few people say that they see what seems to be a civilization of light for one of a better term. And uh, and I know it all sounds wacky. And yet the fact is that people who go to the brink of death return. You know, if you look at thousands of them, you will hear this from people. Wow. So incredible. I'm so just fascinated. There's so many things that you mentioned that kind of stuck out to me. And I just want to preface the follow-ups by just saying that the work you've done is amazing. 50 years you've been studying this Mm -hmm. and just incredible the insight. And I'm always intrigued to explore or discuss any kind of intersection between what you referred to as wacky and Mm -hmm. the evidence-based you know, research and where those things marry and how they marry and how they relate to, yeah, to one another. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are enjoying this conversation thus far. And I thought it was interesting, too, when you said a lot of people reported being able to feel the impact 
of their behaviors or their decisions upon. That is, that's right. That's right. Exactly. People they that they were that, encountering. That's very interesting to me. That's right. To me, too. And it really, it's like if you think it out, it really means, does it, in some sense, doesn't that mean we're all the same person in some hard to grasp sense? In the sense that if you are, if you empathically are that person in your life review, then at least at that point, see, there is an identity. And I mean, it's just, I think it's beyond our, our, you know, p- people naturally all, you know, look at this and they say, well, is this evidence of an afterlife? And I have to, you know, I, before I became, you know, went into medical school, I was a, um, a philosophy professor. And, and what I would say from that stance is that this is a very complicated thing. And I think that we're into something here where we really don't have any conceptual scheme to to make it make sense. And the one that has tried out by Democritus looked at all this. He he had figured out that there are things, despite the <clears throat> appearance of solidity, things are actually made up of tiny invisible bits called atoms, right? And he he wrote about this. He said, the, you know, these experiences of people who almost seem to die. He said, number one, there's no such thing as a moment of death. He said that, in other words, that dying is a process. And he said, what these experiences are caused by is the invisible because atomic activity in the body. That's re- the residual biological activity which takes place on the atomic level, and it's not visible to the eye, but that that accounts for these experiences. The same thing people say, that oh, it's oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? Whereas Plato and others looked at this and took it at face value as an indicator of an afterlife. Not much has changed, sadly, because of limitations in logic. And and that is the, the real fact. I am not, by way, a parapsychologist. I think that the idea that in 2022, anyway, the idea that science could, you know, give evidence of an afterlife, to me, is that that's pseudoscience. That is, and there are reasons for it. It has to do with verifiability, like what sort of um, proof could you give is a far more complex problem. And it, I think the 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 Essential problem was very well identified by David Hume, who lived from 1711 to 1776, and who identified the problem of causation, for example, and the difficulties with inductive logic and so on, but for which he's probably best known. But he wrote an essay on immortality in which he said, "By and if you think these words through as I say them, you'll see he was right. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. He said, some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Now, that is the reality. And Hume meant it as irony. He meant to say that it's impossible. But I say that quite otherwise, that we can solve that problem. Also, the other big difficulty, which was identified by the logical positivist at the early part of the 20th century, and uh, A.J. Ayer, for example, most famously said, 
You know, he said it makes sense in our language to say that a person survived the loss of his memory or the a change of personality or you know, total change of personality. But he says that it just makes no sense to say that a man survived the annihilation of his body. He said it's a self-contradiction. And, you know, that may seem like a trivial criticism to people who feel spiritually informed, but to get right down to what are we talking about is the real problem, <laughs> right? And that is, you know, it's it's a self-contradiction to say that you live after you die, isn't it? I mean, a- if you look absolutely. up the dictionary meanings. Yeah. And see, that's where I've got to start because, you know, I love logic. And um, I was just going to say, I we think, love logic, too. And I get that. I yeah. get that piece. But I think part of the intrigue is, especially with our, with our research as well in grief and dreaming, mm-hmm. is the mystery. Is like all the things yeah. that fascinate me are the things that we haven't quite put our finger on. And so I think for me, that's part of the intrigue and it's having that open-ended kind of piece yeah. and having research only carry us so far is intriguing, I guess. And I think I speak for a lot of people is, when I say is. that. See, I, I was just not, I mean, I was not religious as a kid. I mean, I, and I'm still not religious. I, I just, you know, I, I'm sorry. I just, but, but God is a different matter. I'm Personal things. But I, you know, religion has never made any sense to me. But I, right. I, um, I started, you know, pro, astronomy was my thing. Okay, I that's where I was, and I came across this life after life, like it, life after death thing when I was eighteen years old. Plato was the first person I ever knew who had any interest in the afterlife. I thought it was just a joke. So it, that was in 1962. Now, it's come through a long process. And I am a skeptic in the real sense, the Peronian. You know, what a skeptic is in the sense of the founder of it is a person who refrains from drawing a conclusion. That's the, the essential meaning. So if somebody says, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. That person has thereby identified themselves as an ignoramus, because if you translate that assertion, it means I'm a, I'm a person who doesn't draw con- conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such, right? And they don't know what they're talking about. But to follow that path <laughs> of refraining from conclusions, which I've done even before I knew who Piro was, I've always done that. And so I can't say I've drawn a logical conclusion, but I've said I give up. <laughs> I mean, I can't think my way out of it. They say this thing, oh, the oxygen deprivation to the brain. The trouble is, as you guys probably know, all the time, people standing there at the bedside of a lo- dying loved one will experience these same things, like seeing a light fill the room, feel the apparitions of the departed person's relatives and friends who've died come into the room. Um, even cases, I, I mean, a lot of people have told me over the years that they actually empathically co-lived the dying life review of a person who was passing away, including a wonderful young woman right there in D.C. years ago, whose father was a farmer who was dying and she, not knowing that concurrently, was having, you know, visions of his his life before her eyes. And, you know, so to to try to 
say this is oxygen deprivation to the brain, which some people just want, you know, that's their religion on it. But in reality, the same thing happens to people who are not ill or injured, but who are just right there at the bedside. So where I have come on this is that even though the idea of an afterlife is still highly counterintuitive to me, I give up. I just don't know what else to say. Like I have so many wonderful uh, physician friends, for example, who've had this, whose medical judgment, I, I put my life in their hands if I was sick, <laughs> right? But they say, well, you know, yeah, I had this experience. Was it real? Yeah, well, not only that, it was more real than this thing we're in. So you see it, it just gets me, a, it's not that I've drawn a logical conclusion that there's an afterlife is this, this, I just don't know what else to say. I but like that. To my utter, I, yeah, I really like that position. To my utter astonishment. <laughs> what else could it be? I don't know. Right. Well, I think that's the sitting in the mystery of life. And you really refer that there's this intersection that is going on between other areas of research, as you just mentioned, yeah. the dreams and visions at end of life that people have that have similar mm -hmm. qualities to this and also the grief dreams. So the dreams people have of the deceased right. kind of very similar qualities too, with the sense of either getting information about the afterlife or being in a place of That's peace right. and comfort and total love and feeling that it was more mm -hmm. real than the reality that they normally live in. And so I think that's, that's really right. fascinating. To, yeah, there's, I think that's really fascinating to me that there's just different things that are exploring, I think, a similar topic in the sense of, mm -hmm. as you're saying, like different cousins and family members on a similar phenomenon. And I like to look at it as love. Mm -hmm. Like, so what is this yeah, love yeah. that people are experiencing that's and right. how do that's you, right. how can you get there while you're awake? Right. Like that's, that's my, that's one of my goals. It's like, how can I, I want me too, but I give up on that one too, because we both know everybody says there's no way we have in this framework we're in. They say you have to use the word love only analogously, that it's so far beyond what we can experience in this life and love. And love. But it's interesting, too, that all over the world, people use the words light and love, and they say that, you know, you know it's from that perspective, it's the same, which I can kind of see in some of these cases, I'm sure you've seen of these People who just before they die, there's this flash of light, for want of a better term, where that the, the clarity of the light that's coming from them. I, and I know that, you know, nobody who's not been there working with the terminal ill is going to be able to see that. But, but once you do, you see this just before they die, people, even if they've been demented for, you know, a long time, just suddenly come back to life or i've heard it described by one man who flew all the way from australia to tell me that this thing he saw with his wife he said they looking back on it he said it was like she already had one foot in the other world and i've you know i've seen that myself enough to know exactly what he was talking about Wow. And so this is a fascinating conversation, just like trying to understand the mysteries of life and to be able to sit in it. And I think the most important thing is to just normalize the experience for those who do have it or hear about it from others and just really <laughs> sit, right. yeah, sit in the beauty of what they're experiencing. And hopefully if it's causing distress to sit with them, or if it's causing them comfort and peace and love to celebrate that and to really encourage that conversation. That's exactly always been my, even before I wrote my book, I was confronted with the situation as a medical student, right? I wrote the book and 
in November, it was finished in September of uh, 74, but I'd been a medical student for over two years, see, and I I saw this all the time. It's like the, um, you know, that amazing experience of being there with people as they're going into, it certainly seems they're going into something. It always did to me, you you know, it's just... uh, they talk about their relatives who died. They're in the room with them. I remember going into a room in 1980 with an L. She was in her 80s, an elderly woman, and she was very happily talking to her dead relatives. And when I went to the bedside, she looked at me and she said, "Oh, Dr. Moody, I know what you're thinking. This old woman is delirious. She's, you know, I'm talking to her." And I said, "Oh, no, no. You know, I'm, I'm tuned into that." <laughs> but um, you know that people really do, from their point of view, they're actually conversing with their relatives who've passed away. I just have a question around stigma, and mm-hmm. obviously you're well versed in the in the in the field of psychiatry, and so I'm wondering mm-hmm. just the collective kind of acceptance of these conversations and your experience with how that relates to psychiatry practice, and because like earlier referring to calling you know it wacky or it sounds mm-hmm. wacky, and so I think some people yeah, well it experience. does sound wacky to many people, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so maybe if you could touch on that mm-hmm. a little. Little bit because I think I think some people would have these experience. Like I think a lot of people are open to yeah. sharing, but there has to be people out there that have had these experiences that are reluctant out of fear that they'll there be stigmatized. Are. That's right. Well, you know, I'm just I can understand that. It's it's another way of saying it. It's it's a very personal experience. So you know, I can understand either way. But but I think that things have changed such that. You know, it's it's much easier in 2022 to to find somebody who will listen to you than it was when I was first interviewing people with this back in the 60s. That, but it's just a different time. So I sort of sense that just because of the aging of the population, that there will be sort of a whole new wave of interest in this. I I see it building now. And uh, another thing is life is so hectic. You can't, I mean, it's like, it's easy to judge people for not thinking about death. But, you know, it's, there are all sorts of reasons why people avoid it. Some you know, you have to always ask somebody, well, what is it about death that you fear, right? But some people, as you were aware, are just are afraid that if they talk about it, it bring, might bring it closer. So people who, you know, haven't had a near-death experience are, are reluctant maybe to to talk about the subject or to listen to it. So you can understand why somebody who had had such an experience would be reluctant. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. And, and at the I, same time, oh, I completely me, ag- I agree with that. We're in a more progressive space now with conversations around mm-hmm. just acceptance. I think that we have some room to grow. You know, of course, mm-hmm. but definitely more that space is slowly opening opening more and conversations like this are helpful no doubt but mm-hmm. yeah interesting josh what do you think 
Yeah, I'd like to actually add that's the same problem, even with these dreams of the deceased that people have after a death um, in bereavement, mm-hmm. where because the mm-hmm. research wasn't around and still it's still in its infancy in many ways, people are afraid to talk about them. They, as I said, like they'll feel like they're going crazy or they just, it's not normalized to them. So the grief literacy that they, that most people have just don't mm-hmm. incorporate those dreams as part of it, but it's such <clears throat> an intricate part of the bereavement human experience. And so I think it's just so important to be able to talk about this stuff. And it's, for me, it's weird how the near death experiences have more research and more awareness than something like a grief dream or like a, a dream of the deceased, which uh-huh, yeah. most people would have yeah, probably had, yeah. right? Like, so like more people have had those experiences. Yeah. For me, I'm just going to ask you a question on that. Have you ever experienced your own, you know, dream of the deceased or have you experienced people talking uh, oh, about yeah. this in your research? Yeah, yeah, I have. After my grandmother Moody died, I had a dream in which she was just in this most amazing place of light. I mean, I just, it felt more, more real than a dream. It had its own kind of reality. And and I, I also have had some recurrent dreams about, you know, friends that I lost and held so dear. Milton Friedman was one of my best friends, not the famous economist, my Milton always said there are two Milton Friedmans. One has the economic solution and the other has the economic problem. <laughs> and uh, But Milton was also very famous. He was a pre- presidential speechwriter, but just the most wonderful person. He was like 20 years older than me. And, I, you know, since he died, I've just had these recurrent things. It's like... Um, I had a very interesting grief experience with a woman named Vi Horton that I knew for two decades. And the day she she died on one day, and because of her religion, she had to be buried on the next day. And that next day was the day that I had set aside with my family to go and set, uh, scatter my brother Randy's ashes. So I I didn't get to go to her funeral. And it's created sort of a death. It's like when you sigh, you're anxious and you sigh and it goes to the top, but you can't release it. It's kind of like that. It's well, I think that there are these things, too, that like glitches in the grieving process where because we get and didn't get to do something, it, it's still there in the kind of glitch. Oh, that's that's interesting. Another, yeah, guys, and another thing I have this is one of my. I think that there's a kind of mix-up in our way that we think of grief and society because you know it's like the way people think of the stages of grief, right? Or the thing about the shock and the the numbness and the shock, right? And and then the denial. And the um, the anger, the guilt, the 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 sadness, and and so on. And what's what that is how we think of grief. What strikes me is that those are not the actual symptoms of grief because we experience those in other situations. Like we can be angry or numb or things that for things that or guilty for things that are not loss of a loved one, for example. 
But I think, because I see most people who come to me for grief are the ones who have some, you know, like some really, it, it is, well, the, the most common thing people to say to me when they come in to see me, me to see, see me for grief is, Dr. Moody, I must be losing my mind, right? And those, it seems to me, are the characteristic signs of grief, which you don't get in other things. And it consists, for example, of forgetting that your loved one is dead, right? Like for six months to a year after my mom died, every time we would get in the car to go down to Macon, Georgia, where my siblings still live and my mom still had lived, I would start going through my mental list of things I was going to ask my mom. Then I get into it and say, oh, she's dead, right? And that happens to people all the time. Well, if you hear a lot of grieving people, you know that's normal, so-called. But but people who don't know about grief, see, they think, oh, there's something wrong with me, right? Or people who are looking for their loved, their deceased loved ones in the in the shopping mall, right? They're searching phenomenon, which is perfectly normal, but when it happens to people, because they have its ego dystonic, right? They say, you know, well, this is is not right. There's something wrong with me. Or the anniversary reaction. And these are the the essential characteristics of the grief that don't occur in other kinds of situations as well. So I'm you know, the ones I see are most of people who think that they experience something that is they think is uncanny or taking on the characteristics of the deceased without knowing it is an is another thing that people I did that when Milton died. I just you know, I never have liked bacon and eggs, but like he always did. So a couple of weeks after he died, like we were in the pancake house and I ordered like bacon and eggs. My wife white. You know, and I realized, what is that? It took me a couple of weeks to realize that that was my way of bringing Milton back. So it was unconscious, though. Interesting. I actually love that. And we haven't really talked about that way or using that in particular, like as a continuing bond and a way to kind of pull them close to you and bacon and eggs order. Yeah. I Like I've never really made sense and thought consciously about ordering something that they would order or they, you know, ate regularly. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, since I I'm, I hear that, I've heard that same thing. It was a woman somewhere I was giving a talk on, you know, and she was telling about when they went out to eat after a friend of theirs died, she ordered what the her, her dead friend always ordered. But, you know, not realizing it, but, you know, just sort of caught herself afterward. And it's interesting. You see some of those characteristics within dreams of people searching for the deceased that you sort of mentioned or or like the deceased saying they're not dead. So very similar to some of the issues or the the moments that we're having in waking life where we're not thinking that they're dead or we're searching for them in the mall, right? So it's very interesting how some of the dreams really do mimic some of our tendencies in waking life and what we're going through in that grief process. But then there's these other dreams that are more characteristic, I would say, of the kind of like the near-death experience, the ones where it's full love, there's this comfort, there's this talking, and usually the person Mm -hmm. knows the person's dead and they're just having this conversation. So it's really interesting of, you know, I think using discernment that there are these different experiences that people do go through and some may be a little bit more different than others but we need to sort of explore this and it'll help us understand yeah. i think the grieving process more by able to understand i think these dreams as we sort of move forward with the research i have a quick question because like we're running out of 
time and I could just talk to you and listen to you talk for hours and we probably mm-hmm. would love to have another, another conversation with you. But one of our, right. uh, one of our <laughs> questions we like to ask our guests at the end is if you could have a dream of someone who has died tonight, who would it be and what would that dream look like? How interesting. My Uncle Fairley. My Uncle Fairley was the chief of police in a little town of Georgia. And he was chief of police there for 30 years. And the local judges told me that that when Fairley died, they had to hire three officers to take his place. And uh, when I was a kid, he took me around in his cop car. And I ended up being a forensic psychiatrist. You know, if you, you would, as a psychologist, you would see the connection there, right? And Fairley, he was just such an interesting and very wise and very observant person. And uh, so he popped into my mind. If I had a, a dream of somebody who had passed away tonight, it would be my Uncle Fairley. Yeah. Thanks okay. for that question. What would that dream look like? So I'm really curious on how you'd want to interact with your uncle. Well, I would rather leave it over to him because I figure he's in a much better position to figure out than I am. But I, I guess he knows that I, I think of him often. You know, I mean, I guess seven or eight years old. And I remember when I was very young, him going and investigating a murder when I was, I mean, it just sort of came up. And then oddly enough, I was in two other situations. A friend of mine, Don, Don Glass, who was a chief deputy sheriff in a county I lived in. And my brother, Randy, who was a sheriff for 20 years. And in both cases with them, I have, we just wildly, they were called to a murder scene when I was in the car with them. So it happened three times. And I guess that's partly why I've had the privileges, I think of it, is interviewing probably over three, certainly over 300 people who committed homicide, but probably more like realistically like 400 because, you know, you you don't, you, you sort of quickly stop counting. But So fairly, he had a lot of influence on my life, which has only come up, I think it's only emerged at this phase in my life because um, you would understand as a, as a forensic psychiatrist, see, I it's like it's so relentless, right? I mean, you got 120 assaultive, combative, homicidal, psychotic men in a unit. You know, it's there's not much time for reflection, and you may see 15 horrible, you know, people who've done horrible homicides in a day, right? And so you can't process it. But what it tends to happen is years later, like a few years ago. It kind of started resurfacing in my dreams. And, you know, I just just, um, had sort of festered down there a long time because, you know, I mean, who are you going to talk to when you get home about the man who chopped his mother and father up into pieces, right? It's not your kids or your wife. Anyway, that's the reflections that come up from this. Wow. What a career you've had. This conversation has been incredible. The father of NDE, they call you, Dr. Moody. This has just been so enlightening oh, and different it goes for our right guests. back to you guys. You yeah. guys are great. This is terrific. We are just so grateful to have you and enthused. And yeah, yeah. like Joshua was saying, I just, I'm trying to go to a dinner party at your house. 
um, because this is the type of conversation that I thoroughly enjoy. And you've brought up lots of, you know, really cool insights that me myself am going to, you know, process as the day moves forward. Lots of kind of tidbits there. And you have a lot of resources available. There's lots of information on Dr. Moody on the interwebs. And so we encourage you all to explore as you see fit. And this is definitely no doubt in my mind, planted seeds for seeds of curiosity for many of our listeners. So mm. I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode and it's been great. We hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you so much for that. I'd love to. 